Well, this morning we're going to continue our journey through Ezra and Nehemiah, and these chapters that we're going to cover this morning are truly epic. In fact, I, I want to say that uh, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, me, Nehemiah in chapter 9 has one of the most beautiful prayers of confession in all of the Bible. It's amazing, it's beautiful to see the way in which our God is so faithful and enables us who are so compromised in so many ways to come to return to him, not only individually, but corporately. One of the reasons that we, we this morning um, had a corporate confession of sin is because that's exactly what we find in Nehemiah chapter 9, as we're going to see. Well, listen, I, uh, kids, I want to talk to you this morning uh, first. I want to share with you a story from when I was uh, in the military. One of the things that you have to do in the military, at least uh, in the Air Force, is that you have to do some training. Let's get into this. You have to do some training in which you pretend to be a pilot who has been shot down behind enemy lines. Isn't that crazy? Imagine that you're a pilot, you're flying along, and somehow someone, you know, they, they, they you know, some sort of missile or some gunfire, it takes out your 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 um, your aircraft. And so, what do you do when your plane's going down? What do you do? What button do you hit? You know this, right? You need to know these things in case you're a pilot someday, right? What button is that? The eject button, right? So you hit the eject button and you you're flying out of, out of your your, uh, your jet fighter, and you uh, of course the the uh, the um, parachute deploys and you come down and you land and you realize that what you're in enemy territory, and you've got to figure out how to evade. What's called the word is called evade. That's a big word. Evade means to secretly make your way without getting caught back to a place that is safe, you know, to one of the good guy countries. Does that make sense? Right? So in that process, so the idea is the whole scenario is that you are a pilot who is, you're a down pilot, you're on the ground, you're all by yourself, you're surrounded by bad guys. Okay? It was called, it was part of, part of what was called survival training uh, in the Air Force. And, and a major part of that, now listen, if you're not going to get caught this is very important. If you're not going to get caught by the enemy, by the bad guys, when do you think the best time to travel would be? During the day when it's really sunny? No. It's at night. And so you travel at night and you actually sleep during the day. You find a secret spot to sleep during the day and you travel at night. And of course, do you know where to go? Can you pull out your cell phone and... And now you don't have your cell phone, you don't have Wi-Fi, you know, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no, you don't, you don't have anything like that. All you have, listen to this, all you have is something called a compass. I don't know how many of you know what a compass is, okay? But you follow your compass, and you have a map, and you get your compass, and you use those things. The one, you've got to figure out where you are, and actually, you can, it's amazing, you can triangulate, you can figure out where you are, and you have your map, and you have your compass, and you use those two things to travel by night, and, um, and travel to, a, to, to get out of enemy territory. Now, when I was doing this, they actually, instead of being alone, they actually put us with two other people. So there are three of you. And the first person, his job is to follow the compass, to use the compass and, and get us going in the right direction. The second person, his job is to count the number of steps. Because that's really important. Because sometimes you can't make this, this straight line to go to the place we need to go. There's a mountain in the way, so you have to like go around it or something. So you have to guess, we need to go you know, a thousand meters in this direction and a thousand meters in that direction to, to go around something. And so it's very important to know how far you've gone and so you count. So the first person has the compass, the second person is the counter, 
And the third person, guess what they're doing? They're looking out for, for the bad guys because you don't want to get caught, right? That would, be, that, would be, that would not be a good thing, okay? And so that's how it was supposed to go. Well, listen, when I was doing this, there was me and there were two other guys, and I was the first guy. I was the person holding the compass and telling us when, what you do when you do the compass. You basically, you look at the, the, the direction you're supposed to go, and you find, you look ahead, and you find a spot that basically is where you're supposed to go, and you, you put your compass down, and you walk to that spot. And once you get there, you check your compass again, and you, you make your way along. I mean, you just make, that's how you make your way. Well, I was doing that, and the guy behind me, the guy second, who's supposed to be counting, he, he um, takes his hand, and he sort of, you know, puts it on my shoulder and taps me on the back, and he says, hey, this, this doesn't feel right to me. And I said, what do you mean it doesn't feel right? He said, well, I don't feel like we're going in the right direction. I feel like we're veering off course. We're, I think we're turning right. Are you sure this is right? And I said, well, this is what the compass says to do. And he says, no, but I, I just feel like it's wrong. And we all kind of looked at each other. And my response was, look, you go ahead and follow your feelings. I'm going to follow the compass. Okay? And there was this awkward moment. Are we actually going to split up? Because that was not a good thing. They didn't want us splitting up. The whole idea is we were together so that, you know, if there was a situation of serious safety issues, that we would be together. Right? But I was not going to leave the compass. But he truly thought, he thought, well, what was the, actually the real situation was that we were on a ridge. And guess what? Ridges aren't always in straight lines. Right? So as we were going on the ridge, he thought the ridge was straight when actually the ridge itself was curving. And so as we were going up, we were going up and over this ridge at an angle, he really felt like, it was, hey, this is, this is the way forward. Now listen, we live in a time of feelism where we are all about following our feelings. So much so, this is so important, kids, don't, don't tune out here. So much so that we have come to redefine the very nature of faithfulness. You know what faithfulness is? Faithfulness, kids, listen to this, kids. Faithfulness is being true to something. It's following something. So to follow a compass is to be, to be true to the compass, to follow its directions. To follow something outside of yourself. Or another way that you can, you can do land navigation is through the stars. You see, you find the North Star, and you can say, okay, this is North. I can get bearings. And you, 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 you live, you, you walk according to something outside of yourself, that you're faithful to that. That's what grounds you. That's what roots you. But today, this is so important, there is a greater desire to elevate our own personal choice, personal decision of how I feel about something over and above everything else. So much so that faithfulness, is at least ready for this, faithfulness is defined as being true to yourself. being true to how you feel and identifying yourself as you would please, following whatever feels best to you. It's, a, it's maybe the, 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 the spouse who says, look, I can't do this relationship anymore. I can't do this marriage anymore because I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be true to me. Do you see how that is? I need to be true to myself. 
And so again, there's this amazing in our time, a redefinition of the idea of fidelity because of the worship of what we are feeling. Of course, and this is so important, what doesn't happen is to stop and say something very important, is to ask the question, which self will I be true to? My junior high self? My high school self? My college self? My 20-something self? Which self is my Monday self? Because guess what? I'm different on Mondays than I am on Tuesdays and on Wednesdays. My November self? See, actually, we, it, wrestling with the question, just who am I, is an incredibly difficult question. In fact, listen to this, kids. This is so important. It is only through our siblings and through our close friends, our soulmates, that we actually begin to see our true selves. It's only in committed community that we can clarify our true character. Let me say that again. It's so important. It's only through our siblings and through our soulmates, it's only through those to, with whom we are in committed relationship that we come to see ourselves. I can't tell you, I used to, do, um, I used to be a minister to young adults, 20-somethings, and they, I would put them in small groups, and in fact, I would actually force them to be, and I wouldn't let them choose, I wouldn't say, hey, you're going to be in this group. And they would come to me and say, you know, this is not really my tribe, not really my, my people, I don't think this is a good group for me. And I'll say, that's exactly why you need to be in that group. Because they're not, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not replicas of who you are. And what's so amazing is they would get, as they would be in those groups longer, there would be moments where where one where one of them would say to another, you know, you are so such and such, you know, you're just this is who you are. And the person would say, no, I'm not. And the rest of the small group would say, what? Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> This is only through small groups, only through as you walk together in life that you begin to learn about yourself. And that cannot happen if you are not in a committed, in a committed group. If you don't have real friendships, real community. It's the same thing in marriage. In fact, just in the last three, I don't know, three or four months I've been doing, I think my third or fourth um, premarital counseling uh, sessions with different, different young couples. And uh, one of the things I, I communicate to them again and again is this basic idea that in marriage you will discover yourself. The good and the bad and the very ugly. Right? How many times, I, 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 I've said this before, I'll say it again, how many times, how much money I would get, how much, I mean, if I, could, if I had a $10 bill, for every time a spouse said to me, I never knew what I was capable of. I never knew what a terrible person I could be until I got married. And it was that you got married and you became a worse person? Is that what happened? Or did you get married and you actually, you're stuck and, and suddenly, you know, you just, the, the, the pretense of who we are, the facade of who we are, eventually erodes, erodes away. And we're seeing for what we really are. But it's not just the negative way, it's often the positive way. It's the ways that we can, others can see us, and they can see our gifts, they can see our abilities, they can see the, the, the things that impassion us. And they can say, no, you, you are more alive than ever, and more capable, more happier than ever when you are doing this. So it's only through that commitment that we can discover who we are. But that cannot happen by ourselves. Now let me ask you, 
what would happen? Let's go back to our, let's go back to the being in the woods at night, kids, okay? Let's go back to being in the woods at night. There are three of us. What would happen, listen to this, what would happen if the three of us decided to follow our feelings? What would be the result? Well, first, would we stay together? No. Right? We would, we would not be together. If we follow our feelings, we will end up alone. And so not only would we, and think about this, how many, it took three people to, to, to find, the, to go to the right location. One to do the compass, one to count, and the third to what? Look out for enemies. So what's the likelihood that we're either going to arrive at the right destination or that we're not going to get caught? Overwhelmingly, if we go out by ourselves and follow our feelings, we either be caught by the enemy or we will become lost and eventually caught by the enemy or starve to death. There's this idea that somehow if I follow my feelings and I stay true to myself, I will find happiness. I will find flourishing. And that is deadly. It's deadly. It is so amazing how today we are seeing the, we're beginning to see the impact of this feelism in a way that it leads to people being truly lost and truly alone and so anxious and discouraged. Just like you would be if you were all in the woods all by yourself, lost. You would be anxious. And you would be deeply discouraged. Now listen, they're underlying this Western project of feelism, of personal choice, is this following fundamental assumption. Are you ready for this? Kids, you listening? We will be true to ourselves we will follow our feelings as long as we trust in ourselves. We will be true to ourselves as long as we trust in ourselves. As long as we lean on our own understanding. As long as we think, I know what's best for me and nobody else. That is the fundamental assumption of, of Western culture. I and I alone know what's best for me. Today we see this in our politics. We tend, to, you know, we tend to think of our two political parties, especially after this past week, we tend to think of our two political parties as polar opposites. And in a few ways they are. But fundamentally, they listen to both of them. Are, they're, they're massive bedfellows. They are both deeply committed to the supremacy of personal choice. Whether it's the rugged individualism of the right, or whether it's the identity politics of the left, or whether it's, hey, you can't touch, you can't do it, you can't, don't you dare touch my guns. Don't you dare touch my money. Or don't you dare touch my body. Don't you tell me how to live my life. They just pick and choose the different ways they want to express the supremacy of self. And in Nehemiah, what I want us to see here in Nehemiah, is that we, this is so beautiful, we see a community of faith that is so done trusting itself. They are so over this idea that they know what's best for themselves. And they seek to listen, not to self, not to society, but to scripture. And the result is threefold. We'll walk through it together. It's so beautiful. The result is at first a conviction. They're convicted. They see themselves in a new light. There's the true knowledge of self that happens through the scriptures. We begin to see ourselves 
uh, in this, in this full-bodied way for all of our dignity, but also all of our depravity. The result is first and foremost conviction. The second is confession, where we have true authenticity. We'll see this beautiful, beautiful narration of the Old Testament story, true to itself, true, very authentic, true authenticity. And then finally, a recommitment to community. Got that? The three things that we'll walk through. First is, uh, is uh, the, re- the result of encountering God's word is conviction, then confession, and then recommitment. We'll see this. So we're going to look at 8, 9, we're going to overview chapters 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 8, we see that God's word is read. It's, and it's read and it's, it brings convic- conviction. And then it's in chapter 9 that we have this prayer of confession, this corporate prayer of confession. And then in chapter 10, we have this ceremony of recommitment. So let's go ahead and walk through this first. So it's in chapter 8 again that we see these three things. Now what I want to do though is show you first and foremost, let's go to chapter 9 verse 33 because that's really the crux. I want you to see that this community that comes to, to read God's word together is a community that has been fundamentally about convenience. It's been fundamentally about fake commitment. This is so important. Look at chapter 9, verses 33. This is the climax of the confession. This is what God's people are confessing, saying, this is who we have been throughout the whole Old Testament story. Chapter 9, verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you, as you're speaking to the Lord, you have remained righteous. Now understand, in the language of the Old Testament, the word righteous isn't just some vague moral piety. Righteousness is very precisely defined as conforming to a standard outside of ourselves. That is to say, it is about faithfulness. Righteousness, especially when it's speaking of of God's people or God himself, is about this idea of, of remaining true to a promise, following through on a commitment. In all that has happened as you have remained righteous, and then he, he repeats himself, as you have acted what? Faithfully. But while we have acted wickedly. And again, here, wicked is the opposite of righteous. Wicked, wickedness here isn't just some, we've just been bad people saying, doing bad things. Wickedness here has a very precise definition of pretending to be committed. Pretending to be kidding, making promises, but really having no intention of following through. Okay, in our day and age, we call that bailing. Oh, we're on board, I'm going to want to go out for a date on what, Friday night, but then last moment, we bail. Because it's just inconvenient, or we don't want to do it for a reason. We say we're on board, we, we say we'll go to a small group, but then we don't. Right? We say we're going to be part of a church and, 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 and make vows, but we, we don't really mean it. Right? We, we say we're going, to be, we're going to be committed. We say we're going to give, but we don't. We tell our children, yes, we'll do this on some evening, or we'll, we'll play together tomorrow, and then we don't. We tell our spouses this is what we're going to do. We break promises, but then we don't. It's this idea of pretending, this pretense of following through. And that is, that is, that is it precisely the key struggle of the Old Testament people of God. So profound. At the very heart of the sin of the Old Testament people of God is what's called covenantal presumption. It's this, this sense that, oh, 
Well, surely, I mean, I'm circumcised. I, I've heard, I, go, I, go to, I go to the synagogue, so to speak, every Sunday. And so surely God is on my side. And here in this passage, there's this massive commitment. This is massive confession that, you know what? We've been pretending all along. And boy, has it been costly for us. So the idea is that to this community of, of convenience, to this community of a counterfeit commitment, the word of God is, 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 uh, is read aloud. And we see how in chapter, very, very, it's a little bit weird here, at the very end of chapter 7 is where the paragraph actually begins and speaks of how they all come together, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, as one in the square in, in, in Jerusalem. And it says, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law to Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so here, Ezra, Ezra comes out, he brings the law with him, and he reads it. And it's so beautiful. Listen to these words. I'm going to read some, quite a bit of this because it's just so, so amazing to, 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 to walk through. Verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. Isn't that amazing? The men and women are together. Everyone there, young and old. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So that this first step is so important. We're seeing here a desire for God's word. So to this community... That is a community of convenience. The word of God comes. It comes. And it comes. Why? Because there is a desire. There's a deep desire to be attentive and to hear the word of God. They're, they're done listening to self. They're done listening to social media. They're done listening to the society. And they're attentive to God's word. Verse 4. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Actually, what we're going to see here is through a lot of this section here, we're going to see things that are actually liturgical movements that are actually familiar to many of the Protestant churches today because they're, they're, they're actually uh, imitating this very chapter. And so the, the idea of having a pulpit that is high above, you know, a lot of our older churches, you have this pulpit and it's, and it's far above the congregation, is rooted in this very, this very, this very text right here, Ezra chapter 4. He stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on the right side stood a list of persons who were uh, leaders in the, in the community. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. In many churches today, you have this. Where you, they say, will you please stand for the, the reading of God's word. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Again, there's a sense of kneeling and reverence and awe. And it speaks to the Levites who were present with them or standing there in approval. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meanings that the people could understand what was being said. You have, you have multiple languages here, multiple levels of comprehension, and the Levites do exactly what the Levites are supposed to do, which is to instruct God's people to, to explain, to, literally to preach, to, uh, just as I am doing right now. Verse 9, Then Nehemiah the governor, as were the priests and the teachers of the law, and all the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord. Now listen, what says comes next is amazing. Do you, do you see this? Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping 
as they listened to the words of the law. Isn't that amazing? Nehemiah encourages them. He, he calls them to celebrate and to rejoice. And he says, this day is when he calls them to, he says, he says, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites call, call the people, be still for this day is holy, do not grieve. But again, the people, they do, they, 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 verse 12, this is so beautiful. They, having heard God's word, there's both conviction, but also celebration. Isn't that beautiful? There's real conviction, but also celebration. Then verse 12, then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because now they now understood the words that had been made known to them. What a beautiful, uh, what a beautiful um, a picture of how to receive an eagerness to receive God's word. It comes from having a desire for the word, a deference for the word, that eventually leads to a, a real delight in God's word. And we see actually from there that they learn about uh, one of the great festivals and they actually participate in that festival. Um, it's a beautiful rest of the story. I'm going to move on here. But we see, verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the, with the regulation, there was an assembly. And, of course, at the end of the chapter, we're, we're left with this question. Okay, they've been reading God's word, and it's led them to weep. It's led them to cry. And the question is, Why? What was it in the word that left them to do this? And we find out the answer in chapter 9. We find out what it is about God's word that has been so convicting. And here we see chapter 9, verse 1. We see on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting their dust on their heads. These are acts of formal public acts of confession, recognizing that through God's word that they, they are not who they should be. And then verse 2, I love this. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. We're thinking, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? Is this some sort of ethnic superiority? No, it's the actually, actually, actually the exact opposite. It's an, if you will, it's an ethnic inferiority. In the sense that they actually separated themselves from all the foreigners because they realized that they had some serious confessing to do as Jewish people. They stood in their places and confessed their sins. And the sins of their what? Their ancestors. Isn't that amazing? So there's this corporate notion, this notion of corporate sin that says, you know what, I am a participant in the sins of those who had preceded me at, on, along an ethnic line. That's an amazing thing to think about. As a race, as an ethnicity, I actually have particular sins that are, that are for me and for my ancestors. Verse 3, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. It's so beautiful. We read again of the presence of the Levites through all this, who say, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And what follows in the rest of this chapter is one of those beautiful confessions of sin in all of the Old Testament, in all the Bible, really. And, 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 and as it confesses the sin, it tells the story of God's people. And I want to make a few things, I want to highlight a few things, because it's in that story that we see why God's people weep. It's in this confession that we see why God's people are so broken. And it begins in the, very, the last half of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Listen, and here is where true confession begins, with the declaration of God's holiness. You alone are the Lord. 
And the supreme way that, that God's holiness is manifested is through the fact that he alone is creator. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You Listen to this. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Get what he's saying, what they're saying here. God, we recognize that you designed us. That you know how we work. You know us inside and out. You care for us deeply. If anyone knows our true identity, if anyone knows who we are, if anyone knows how to make us flourish, how to make us, you know, how to make us uh, be, be the kind of people that we were designed to be, it's God. Why? He made us. He knows what's best for us. In wisdom and in love, he, he designed us. And to simply walk away from his design, to walk away from his purposes for us, to walk away from his laws that are for our good, is foolish. It's heartbreaking to walk away from such love. But not only is he the creator, that's in the way that he knows us inside and out. And look in verse 7. It's not only not as he a creator, he's a creator who calls. He calls us. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. There's this beautiful, she recounts how God basically takes this, this one who is completely infertile, who's unable to have any children, and he names him a father of many nations, Abraham. He calls him something that he's not. Which is so, which is so profound, it's so amazing, so moving, that God is going to look at us and he's going to say, look, I know you feel this way. I know every bone in your body feels this way. You feel like there's no hope for you. You feel like you're, it's inevitable that you're only going to be this forever. Well, tell you what, I'm going to call, I'm going to give you a name that's the opposite. You think you're wicked, you are righteous. You think there's no hope of change in these ways? No, this is who you're going to be. You think you're an orphan? You are a child. There's this constant redefining, calling God. God calls his people to be and do something different. We see here in verse 9, compassion. So we see God as creator, as the one who calls us by some, a new name. We see him as one who is deeply compassionate. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. This beautiful sense of compassion, how he, he acts and he intercedes for them. Verse 13, he gives them counsel, wisdom, a way to follow. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. And then he speaks of how God's people rebelled against all of that. He speaks of how they, they, they refused to follow the one who is their creator who called them to something new, who gave them the counsel of the law. And I want to highlight just one more, one further aspect of this, because he speaks on and tells the story. But I want to, I want to highlight, I think it's in, um, let me look and make sure I can find it here, because I want to say it's in verse 20, um, 27 here, if I can find it. But 
but it speaks here of, of, of the quotation of Leviticus 18, where he speaks of, he says, he, you gave us our laws, verse 29, there it is, I'm sorry, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant, there's that sense of knowing what's best for yourself, and disobeyed your commands, they sinned against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Guys, listen to that, hear what's being said. And this is the quotation of Leviticus 18. And the idea here is that whoever obeys God's law will experience life. Do you want to be alive? My, one of my, my kids and I, we love listening to Carl. We love listening to John Bon Jovi. I don't know if you guys know who John Bon Jovi is. 80s, 90s, uh, you know, a rock singer. But he has this one song about, um, about being alive. He wants to live his life alive, right? And so he wants to do it sort of his way. And it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a fun song. It's a great song. But it's this idea of, of somehow just I'm going to do however I want, and that's going to make me most alive. And Scripture is saying just the opposite. If you listen to yourself, it will lead to death. But the person who listens to his counsel, who follows his law, that's what's going to make you feel alive. That's what's going to bring life and blessing to you. In the rest of the verse, stubbornly they turned their backs on you and became stiff-necked and refused to listen. And that's where we find the last part I've read already, verse 32, this the climax of the confession. Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us and on, on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors, and all the people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. We have pretended to be committed to you. So then he seeks and he implores God to act. Verse 36, the very last, first, sorry, verse 37, the very last line, we are in great distress. And so we see what has caused them to come to tears. Hear God, the creator, who knows them inside and out, who cares for them, who calls them to something greater, the one who's filled with compassion, the one who's counsel, who actually shows them the way. The other, day, the other day, I was asking one of my daughters, I said, what is, the, what is, what is, what is something that is from just my, my teaching and from my preaching, what is the, the one thing that you remember, is there anything that you remember most about what I've taught you? And she said, yeah, I, said, I remember you told us the Bible is the manual for how to live life. Isn't that beautiful? Do you believe that? It is the manual. You don't have to find your own way. You don't have to be lost in the woods without a compass, just following your feelings. You found a way in God's word, and they're grieved because here they had the directions all along, and they've been following their feelings. And the result we see at the very beginning here, I'm sorry, the very close of chapter 9, we see that there's an agreement among people. Verse 38, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, a covenant, a commitment putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites are fixing their seals to it. Look at chapter 10. This is a beautiful list where people are actually signing on the dotted line. What would it be like if as a church we actually made a commitment, we renewed our vows, and actually on this wall over here, 
went over and signed our names. Not just tiny little, but large, really large. We just wrote our names, signatures on there, saying that this is what we are going to do. And here are the names. You see all the different, the different, different tribes, the different leaders. And what's amazing here in verse 28 is to see that there's not only Jews, there's actually all people groups. The rest of the, rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the neighboring people. So those are Gentiles. Why? For the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all the sons and daughters who were enabled to understand. All of these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. There's no selective obedience here. There's no sort of picking and choosing. This isn't some smorgasbord of, of, of convenient commands that we're going to follow. No, we are completely, we are all in. And so we see these specific ways of no, no, not marrying those outside the people of God. We see uh, economic justice, a commitment to economic justice in verse 31, where they're to celebrate the Sabbath and they're going to do no buying or selling on the Sabbath. And so we, we see a, a renewed commitment to the people of God in verse 32, where they're, they're, they're committing to give to the house of God, to tithe, and to promote God's word, and to promote God's uh, pray, the worship of God and his festivals, and all of those things that are committed to that. And we, it's, it's summarized into the very, very last word of the chapter, verse 39, very last line. We will not neglect the house of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful three chapters that speak again of a redefining of faithfulness back to, to God's word, back to the scriptures. So this community of convenience, this community of counterfeit commitment, the word, to, to the, the word comes and it brings conviction. It brings a sense of, there's a desire for it and it ends, and it ends in delight. And that conviction leads to confession, real authenticity, and then finally to recommitment to the Lord and to one another. Let me close with this. In Mark 3, listen to this, Jesus says, Jesus is, is with his disciples and someone says, hey, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside. And Jesus asks this question, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? See, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the family was everything. Your biological family, your extended family, that was your fundamental devotion. And Jesus here redefines that he takes that notion of family of commitment and redefines it in this powerful way, saying, I'll tell you who my real family is. It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is your brother? Do you believe that he is committed to you? That he is faithful to you? So faithful that he was willing to die on a cross for you. Kids, when you listen to the story, okay, because it tells the story of Jesus. Back in July of this past year, if I remember right, I think it was this year, there was a boy, he was six years old. His name was Bridger. And he was out playing with his sister. And they were playing, his sister was younger, I'm not sure, I think it was three, or three years old, I'm pretty sure she was three years old. And she was playing, and he saw from a distance a dog running up to this little, to his sister. 
And this dog looked very angry and wanting to attack his sister. And so, you know what he did? You know, he might have been scared. Dogs like that can be really scary. He could have run away. But you know what he did instead? He ran between his sister and the dog. And the dog attacked him instead. In fact, he had 90 stitches all over his body. You can look it up. You can ask your parents to look it up on Google. It's a picture of him. And the picture that I would love for you to see, I want you to go this afternoon and look at this picture. It's a picture of Bridger. And he's got this massive belt. This massive belt. You know what the belt is? It's a belt that says World Heavyweight Champion on it. This is so cool. The World Boxing Council decided that they would recognize Bridger as a world heavyweight champion for a day. And they sent him this big belt saying that he's a champion. Why? Because he was the best fighter in the world that day. Isn't that beautiful? In fact, he said these words. He said, listen to this, kids. He said, if someone was going to die, it must be me because I'm the older brother. Now, if that's not a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and of his commitment to us, his faithfulness to us, what is? Is Jesus your brother? Are you in the family? Is your, is your commitment to Christ fake? Or is it for real? To whom are you committed? Is it your feelings? Is it yourself? Is it your society? Whatever society says to do? For whom are you sacrificing? How are we living in the imitation of Bridger, in the imitation of the six-year-old boy? For whom are we sacrificing? Is it only those who will benefit us? Is it only family? Is it only our friends? Brothers and sisters, there's nothing like a community of faith, a local community of faith that decides to be faithful to one another, to be faithful to our God. Why? Listen, let these ears ring, let these, let these words ring in your ears as we leave this morning. God will never give up on you. He will never give up on you, on all of us. So how can we give up on each other? Who do you know that's ready to give up? Who are, upon whom are you right now? Who are you ready to give up on? He will never give up on us. So how can we give up on others? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice. We just rejoice. We revel in the love, the sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was faithful to the very end, the one who was faithful in the face of loneliness, in the face of rejection, in the face of, be, in the face of being forsaken by his own Father. He was faithful to the end. Brother, who are we that we should have such faithfulness? Father, we long to have one who will never leave us or forsake us. Father, we're tired of, of those who have made promises and not kept them. Father, we're tired of living in a way that we, we have this pretense of commitment to you and to others. Father, please send your Holy Spirit. He and he alone can change us and empower us to walk faithfully before you. Oh, Father, please, would you give your, your church a hunger for your word? A, just a refusal to listen to society or self any longer and to hunger for your word. 
Father, would you do that? Would you give us a desire? Oh, Lord, I pray for a day when my cell phone would ring regularly with congregants wanting to know what this text means or what does Jesus say when he, what does Jesus mean when he says this or how does this psalm, what does it mean for me? Oh, Father, I long for a day when your people hunger for your word. They long to hear it. They long to gather and fast. They long to gather in, in, in confession, in prayer. Oh, Lord God, please, would you move our hearts, change us from being a group of people into a community of faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.